Welcome to another episode of Affordable Housing and Real Estate Investing. Today, I got investor Bobby D, formerly known as Robert Delina, but I'm so excited to have him on the podcast today because he is actually on the board of directors for his local housing authority, Merced County. He's going to bring a wealth of experience from his incredible journey uh, about with his real estate investing journey from construction background and all the way to all the nonprofit stuff that he does today. Uh, without giving it all away, Bobby, welcome to the show, man. Tell us a little bit about yourself and how did you even get started in real estate investing, man? Yeah, yeah. Thanks. Thanks for having me on, Kent. I, I really appreciate the opportunity to come on and, and talk about the uh, the things that I'm participating in. Um, so gosh, my, my background has been uh, wide and diverse. Um, I tell people that uh, I'm really ultimately on my third career now at this point. But here's here's the real quick breakdown on uh, my history and how I ended up investing in real estate. So I was at a young age one of the uh, very nerdy kids that would prefer to be indoors on the ha on a computer that rather than outside, you know, playing playing and uh, doing whatever else uh, kids like to do these days. Um, so I went into computer engineering at Cal Poly here in California. Uh, straight out of high school. I mean, literally straight out of high school. Like mm -hmm. I graduated and two weeks later, I was in the dorms. I did one of their Head Start programs and got a, an early jump on it. What I what happened was, is I got a little bit burned out um, on the tech world in general. Uh, while I was doing my degree, I was about three years in or whatnot. And during that time, I was working two jobs. I was working one in IT, and then I was also working in construction um, I started doing construction just because a buddy of mine was working in construction and I needed some extra cash to, you know, pay for school and car and cell phone insurance, you know, how, how the bills stack up when you're, when you're young. And, um, so I started working in construction part-time with him. And so as I got burned out, I was like, you know, I'm watching these contractors, they're making good money. They're outdoors swinging a hammer. You know, this seems kind of cool. Why don't, uh, why don't I transfer majors to construction management. And so that's what I did. So <laughs> switch to that. This was actually where I really started to get into, I guess you could call it real estate, right? I'm working on building uh, buildings at this point, but I graduated with a degree, uh, came back to my hometown and uh, started working basically right off the bat. I had lined up a job with a local developer. And that developer, uh, I ended up working for all the way through the housing collapse. So we're talking 2007, 2008, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. right? The, the Great Recession. So I started out with that developer as a uh, assistant superintendent and then superintendent of construction. I supervised the construction of about 400 some homes all up and down uh, Merced County and even outside of Merced County um, for this regional developer. Uh, the, the collapse started and I managed to stay on as one of the last few employees in the company as they were sort of rolling things up for about a year or so. And, um, but obviously I saw the writing on the wall. I knew my time was limited. So I actually started going back to school in the evenings, got another degree in business administration with a concentration in finance, because I figured, Hey man, as long as there's money, there's going to be people that need to be pushing the numbers around, right? So I'll, I'll get into finance. 
I got, um, I did very well the second time around. It's amazing how much focus you can have in college when you're a little bit older and, you know, going out and, uh, you know, having a few beers or 10 beers on a Friday night, you know, isn't as appealing anymore. And so I did really, really well. I ended up being finance student of the year and got all these awards and whatnot. And because of that, um, a recruiter with a mortgage company had saw some of my, you know, post online where I'd posted my award from the ceremony or whatever. And I got recruited into mortgage finance. And that has been probably my mainstay, I would say, my primary work for the last mm -hmm. little over a decade. But during that time, I've also started to apply the things that I have learned from my other experiences in the past. So, for example, um, I now develop raw land and real estate. Uh, wow. Very, very young in the process, right? I'm, I'm not, you know, developing 150 lot subdivisions or greater. Um, right now, I've got 73 lots in various stages of entitlement spread across three small projects. But I'm about two years in, so you just kind of keep snowballing that as it goes on. Um, so that's one of the ways that I'm investing in real estate. On top of that, there is, um, I, I am partnered in two investment groups, one that focuses exclusively on multifamily and large portfolios, and another one that we do more of a direct-to-seller marketing like you would experience through mm -hmm. like Sub2 and other communities like that where, you know, we have a, a team of VAs that are calling down lists that we get. Um, we were previously pulling data from online sources like, you know, Batchley's prop streams, the, the, yep. the folks yep. like that. We found a better way to do it um, going directly to the counties instead of going through prop stream and, and batch leads. So that's where our data comes from. And, you know, we pick up a lot of properties that way as well. In addition, my, my last way that ties all into the real estate investment is going back to my roots with uh, software development. So you and I uh, only talked about mm -hmm. this briefly prior to today's call, but uh, tech has always remained a passion for me, even though I got burned mm -hmm. out during school. And so I do volunteer uh, my time um, after work to teach uh, web development uh, to basically um, people that we call them underdogs, people that otherwise wouldn't have had access to this kind of training or ecosystems to get involved in tech um, and with a company called Bitwise. Bitwise focuses exclusively on underdog communities. So in communities that have below average area median incomes, you know, economic struggles of some kind. And how that ties into real estate investing is, is I'm actually in, in the process of um, standing up a software solution to help investors underwrite properties. So that's super cool. I've got a lot of, a lot of irons in the fire, a lot of stuff going on. Um, I stay pretty busy between, uh, you know, the day job doing lending for people and then plus all of the stuff that I do after hours as well. So that's kind of the, oh, the rundown man. professionally for me. And then of course Bob. we've got all the volunteer stuff stacked on. Oh top my God. Bobby D you are, you are legendary, man. <laughs> the amount of work that you're doing, the, the amount of the different careers you've had. I mean, I'm so excited that you decided to come on the podcast, right? When I first just listened to you for the first time, I was like, wow, 
this guy has so much value to kind of offer to someone young like me, you know, that's just trying to get started and trying to learn as much as possible and soak everything up like a sponge. But, you know, let's take it from the beginning, right? You yeah. talked about construction, you talked about finance. Yeah. Now you're doing developing land. Let's go back to the beginning really quick and just talk about like, hey, yeah. supervising construction of almost like a couple hundred homes, that is really daunting, man. Like, how yeah. so let's talk about what did you learn in that process and what were like the biggest challenges you think coming oh up boy. That, job that you learned <laughs> back to the construction days yeah that that was a tough schedule depending on the week and what was going on um mm-hmm. we built houses on a release schedule so got it whatever corporate said was going to be our release schedule that's what we adhered to sometimes we were starting two new homes a week sometimes we were starting 10 Um, but yeah, that, that was, a an interesting time for me because here I was fresh out of school with a, you know, construction degree Mm -hmm. and, um, I had had some experience working in the actual trades, but it was mostly framing, plumbing, and electrical. Those were the three things that I was learning during those days. Mm -hmm. Now I had to basically learn every other trade so that I could supervise them, right? (laughs) You have to kind of know what's going on in order to be able to tell somebody, hey, that's not done right or whatnot. So that was a really transformative period for me. Uh, And uh, it was a lot of spreadsheets uh, to keep Mm -hmm. track of everything. Had to walk every single house at least twice a day, once in the morning, once in the evening. If I was monitoring at some points in time, I was monitoring more than one or building more than one subdivision. So I'd have to drive from Mm -hmm. one to the other. Um, But I'll tell you one of the, one of the biggest challenges in construction, but this applies everywhere is interpersonal relationships. Um, You know, on every house, we've got anywhere from 40 to 60 subcontractors working (sighs) on that house. And managing all of those relationships successfully and getting the desired end result out of everybody is a lot more difficult than you might think that it is. And heaven forbid one contractor, you know, is late on a specific project Mm -hmm. because that pushes back in general, not always, but in most cases, it pushes back every other trade behind them. And then those people already had, you know, maybe they are planning to do the electrical on lot 23. Well, shoot, now lot 24 was behind schedule. Now they have to bundle up 23 and 24 and manage to do it all in one day. And that creates a lot of internal strife. There's always disagreements, especially between the subcontractors themselves. Oh, that's your mess. You need to clean that up. Oh, you did this. Oh, Oh, that's not my job. You know, and navigating that whole thing, that was probably my biggest takeaway was just learning by doing how to manage relationships between other people. And then of course, between myself and the subcontractors, that was actually my biggest takeaway, not the actual construction knowledge that Mm -hmm. uh, I love it. It's phenomenal. I do a lot of uh, remodel work on my own projects just for Mm -hmm. fun, not because I have to, but because I like it. But that knowledge was not the lifelong takeaway for me. It was managing those relationships. And that is so cool, right? And I love that you called out managed relationships because that is almost interconnected with how you got to sequence the work when you're when you're handling construction for so many houses at once, right? Yeah. So you have two to ten houses. You might have someone that like, hey, the the grade is a grading done before the pavers kind of come in, right? 
and you're just like, well, whatever rains on one day, then you get all this finger pointing. And the analogy I use sometimes for this stuff is like when you're mm -hmm. running a restaurant and you know, a food comes out cold or something like that. The kitchen might say like, well, the server never came in to bring the food out. So it's been sitting there for so right. long. And, and then they're going to be like, oh no, it's the kitchen's fault. They, they didn't serve it on time or they didn't wait for me. Right. It's kind of all this finger pointing and people underestimate how much work there is to manage those relationships. And also to think about like the massive amount of coordination and sequencing that has to take place for construction. So I love that you kind of just pulled the curtain back on that process, Bobby, and just showed people like, Hey, you can probably ask, if you, if you have an electrical question or a plumbing question, chances are you can probably call around and get the right answer. But when you have delays on a job, that's where things really get complex and you got to make sure you have the budgeting uh, to account for that stuff. So yep. maybe if I would ask a question, like how much, how much time do you leave in between? Like you, you must've managed enough projects now where you're like, Hey, typically we see delays here. Typically we see delays here. Do you already build in those sort of delays with between subcontractors or is it like, corporate says you got to hammer this out this is yeah. the deadline figure it out what do you think so in in our schedules uh, i got pretty good at this um mm. and once you've got good relationships with your subcontractors and good subcontractors to begin with right we were very we're, we're quick to hire but we're quick to fire as well right, right. um and in reality that sounds kind of heartless but it's the only way to to truly succeed um, and to create the best experience, not just for yourself, but for everybody else that's dependent on that person, um, or that subcontractor. Mm -hmm. So we got the right people in the right places and we knew what to expect from them in total on, let's say a single story build. I got to the point where we only had about two days of buffer built in. Wow. And those were usually built in, uh, during periods where we knew that there were potential issues or there would be weather delays. Um, Got it. You know, on a on a three or two story building, we were putting in anywhere from three to four days worth of buffer, depending on the time of year. Uh, it was a lot of it's dependent on rains. Wow, that is uh, well, it helps that you have a lot of experience, and I'm sure that has translated to what you're doing now, right, Bobby? You mentioned that you're a part of a team in multifamily now as part of the investment group, and also in Doctor Seller for. Let's take a step back, actually. Let's go into the land development. So yeah. how did the skills from all your construction background help you Ooh. with all this land that you're thinking? Like, what are you looking at? Like, what have you learned that you're applying? And you're like, oh, wow, I've seen this before. Now I can prevent that from happening. But what kind of new things are you running into when you're not developing raw land? Yeah. So land development, we, we didn't really talk about my... Uh, all of my volunteering that I do outside, but there's one of those that is very relevant to this. And I'll bring that up in a second. Yeah, let's do it. Um, you're absolutely hundred percent right. The experience working for a developer, especially on the construction side has enhanced what I'm able to do on the development mm -hmm. side, because I know what to expect from our contractors. You know, that, that skill translates basically one for one. Um, right. The area that, I really picked up, I would say, the most knowledge in how to get to that point to go from raw land to a developable lot was actually mm. through volunteering. And that volunteering took the form of sitting on my city's planning commission. So wow. I just recently retired from my city's planning commission three months ago uh, because I termed out. I spent eight years um, wow. on the planning commission. And on the planning commission, that's one of the things that you see typically is 
uh, development proposals, engineering, you're approving mm-hmm. conditional use permits, all kinds of stuff that have to do with entitling land is, is what the process yeah. is called. And that really opened my eyes and pulled back the curtain for me. And even, even then, it still took years. I was on the planning commission for probably, what, six years before mm-hmm. I attempted to do it on my own and felt like I at least knew enough to be dangerous, and, <laughs> you know, take some scary action and jump in and try it for myself. And I, I did. I started with a very small, I bought one lot that I knew um, I could subdivide into four and it just went from there. Um, the four turned into the next project was 21, turned into 36, turned into 73. Wow. I mean, what a journey that was. I mean, so if someone is new, right, obviously mm-hmm. they should not get into raw land development. Um, but if they were just to like say, hey, I'm, I want to invest in a deal that has to deal with raw land. What type of questions do you think they should ask about the land to make sure like they're not investing in like garbage, uh, for lack of better words? So many questions. So (laughs) many questions. And um, this is this is why not everybody does land development, right? Mm -hmm. There is a depth of knowledge needed to make sure that you don't end up uh, getting yourself in some in some trouble. Yeah. So. At the end of the day, and this varies from jurisdiction to jurisdiction, keep in mind, I'm in California, right? So we have a lot of extra regulation on top, uh, specifically as it relates to development that some other Mm -hmm. states don't have. But some of the fundamentals still are in place. So, for example, you find a piece of land and you're thinking, uh, you know, maybe this might make a good real estate development with some, let's say, single family homes. Mm Um, number one, does, does the land reside in a county or is it part of a city or is it within a Mm. city sphere of influence? These are all different boundaries that get drawn by governments, right? Um, that oftentimes have an impact on when and how a piece of land can be developed. Mm -hmm. Let's say you ID a piece of property and you're like, gosh, it'd be great to have, uh, you know, some houses here. Well, maybe the city's general plan calls for that area to be industrial and they're not mm-hmm. willing to budge on that. That's probably not something that you necessarily should be buying. Big zoning issue. On, yeah. <laughs> they may not allow you to change the general plan, but then again, maybe they might. It, would it be consistent with the area? Is there surrounding uses that are similar? Is there some reason that this would make a, a good area mm-hmm. for residential versus industrial does the city have a need for industrial and that's why they zoned it there in which case they now need to find somewhere else to put in the general plan or the zoning for industrial if you offset here these are all things that are considerations more tactical stuff outside of planning where are you going to get your water sewer and storm drainage if necessary right that's a big deal and no matter what state you're in Typically, you're dealing with NEPA, which is, um, you know, the national EPA uh, regulations about environmentals. So you need to identify where your water is going to come from. Is it going to come from a well or are you going to tie into some kind of municipal source with a city or county? Got it. If if you could be in a water district where you have to, that land might have to enroll as part of the water district. Well, here's another wrench to potentially put in the works. There are things, it's typically called a can and will serve letter. 
Um, that's a letter from a uh, water district or a sewerage district or whatnot that basically says, hey, we have capacity to serve your project Got it. and we will serve it. Now, just because your land is part of a water district doesn't mean that they necessarily have capacity. They might be at capacity right now. Maybe they're planning for their next, you know, well to be drilled. They might come to you and say, well, if you really want to develop this land, you got to kick in half a million dollars towards our next well. Those kinds of things happen through development agreements. So just looking at the overall plan for that piece of land as it relates to what the county and or city says mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. and the water sewer infrastructure, that's about two key pieces out of what I would say ultimately ends up being probably 10. Yeah. So it's kind of like part of due diligence. You had to figure out yes. whether or not the zoning is in place, whether or not the city even agrees with the development approach. Cause sometimes these conversations usually happen before you really go further on land, right? This seems like a huge investment. Yeah. If, if all parties are not on board, this is really where your private and public really kind of come together and have that conversation, yeah. especially when it comes to infrastructure, right? It's like, you gotta have water. If people take that stuff for granted sometimes, man, uh -huh. you gotta have a way to live. Um, so that's really cool. Thank you for kind of walking through that. That's really, really helpful. Um, and is your exit strategy with this land, are you trying to develop buildings on it or are you just trying to sell off the land once this kind of gotten its entitlement and everything? What, what does the yeah. exit strategy look like? So for, for me and my partner right now on the development side, we're, we're trying to eke every bit of profit we can out of the development. Mm -hmm. So we're not focusing on just flipping the land. There are people that do that. They'll go mm -hmm. buy a piece of land, develop it, sell it off to Lennar, DR Horton, Centex, mm -hmm. you know, the big, the big national builders. Yep. Um, for us, that's not our, that's not our business plan. Um, you know, we're relatively new. So there's very few projects in the big scheme of things that we can afford, right? We can't go mm -hmm. buy a um, hundred acres uh, you know, for $5 million and then spend another 6 million <laughs> building it yeah. out. Right. We're not there yet. So we need to scrape every bit of profit out of the build as we can. So we're doing all the way from law raw, raw land to the finished home. Got it. And what does that timing even look like from the time you, you got the planning to getting the home up and to actually yeah. selling it off? Like th this sounds like it can take forever because there's so many conversations that's going on. Right. But you can just it demystify can. that process. Like what can people, what can people really realistically expect? Cause that's another way we can qualify things, right? When people have way too optimistic expectations, like, Oh, we can go with this in a year. You're like, what? No, are you sure? <laughs> so again, keep in mind, I live in California yeah. and the regulations <laughs> here are way over the top. Um, I mean, the States even recognize it's a problem now mm -hmm. because there haven't been enough homes built. Um, yes. we've, we've got a shortage of over a million homes in just California alone. And mm -hmm. a lot of that is because the regulations have become too onerous, um, too hard to navigate, and almost anybody can sue to stop a development project. They may not successfully stop it, but they'll mm -hmm. waste a bunch of your money for you know a year or two. So the timelines here are protracted versus some other areas. But fortunately, we do a lot of due diligence, as you might imagine, yes. before we even buy a piece of land, right? I'm mm -hmm. running down that list of 10 items uh, very early on so that we know we have at least a 99% chance of having a successful development. Like so from the time we close on the land, usually at that point, we're going out to bid right away for um, engineering and surveying. 
Mm-hmm. Um, that's usually going to take, depending on the size and scope of the project, that's going to take you at least two to three months just to get that done. Once you submit into whatever the relevant agency is, whether it's county mm-hmm. or city, um, you can expect that process usually uh, around here to take another 30 to 60 just for first review. They'll come back with comments, mm-hmm. additions, corrections, uh, changes that they might want. Go back again um, to engineering, figure another couple of weeks to a month to do those changes back to the municipality again. And that, that process just iterates over and over again yeah. until you've got it successfully done. In general, we, tr- we try to aim for two submissions, uh, three max, ideally, hopefully. Got it. Um, but once you've got that whole process uh, kind of dialed in about how it should be, then you start involving the public um, facing parts of the municipality. Now, Mm. in some cities and counties, the planning commission has absolute authority to approve subdivisions. Um, In others, they don't. They give it kind of a first look, say that they find it compliant and it looks good to them. And then it goes up to either the city council, board of supervisors, whichever, you know, is relevant. And at that point, then you've got public input and all kinds of stuff going on. And you have elected officials making decisions. Um, assuming that you make it through that process, uh, and your map, your tentative map is good to go. That'll usually record 30 days later after you have your tax certs and all of that fun stuff. And then you move on to final map. Now, (laughs) yeah. So now you need to actually put in place a final map that goes through essentially the same process. Um, in my municipality here in general, once you've gotten to final map, there's not much that can stop mm-hmm. the process. It's, it's really a, a consent item from there on out, which means it's it. just a low priority item that generally just gets adopted by your council or board of supervisors without being individually reviewed. It's like adopted as part of a group of items that are just, you know, ongoing common business. Um, but once it's, that's recorded. Now, now the work actually begins. So you're probably a year in at least at this point, um, if not a year and a half. That's kind of the average turnaround time to take a mm-hmm. raw piece of land to fully entitled. Um, even though hypothetically, technically, this whole process should be able to be done in less than six months. Never works out that way, ever. Thank so, you. Thank you for, for clarifying that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, if you followed the legal timelines, like using the maximum or minimums, you could complete entitlements in six months. It just, it just never happens. Uh, you're counting on people responding to the emails right away. Like, oh, boom, you got it back. I'm going to work on this right away. It, it just doesn't work like that. It's unrealistic. Um, it doesn't work. Holidays, like vacations. Yeah. yeah. I, I think that's super, super while explaining and thank you so much for walking through all those steps. It was super, super clear. And I'm sure all the listeners out there right now are like, wow, I got to work with Bobby D if I got another <laughs> land deal going on. Cause this guy really knows what he's doing. So hey, if you got uh, a land deal, bring it. Um, we're looking yes. to operate outside of California now. So we're looking to grow love a little it. bit. Love it. Love it. Love it. Well, so we talked a little bit with the land development, right? Now yeah. you're into multifamily and you got a little director, say, um, director seller kind of wholesale marketing operation. What is your role now? Like where does a team benefit the most from having you on a team? Is it like, are you consulting on construction approaches? 
Are you there to raise capital? Where have you found your sweet spot to be? Just because like we learn a lot about the avatars and stuff too. We learn a lot yeah, about yeah. how people can succeed in certain roles the best. What have you found to be kind of your niche now so people know how to reach out to you and and best you know take advantage of your strengths? You were talking about Avatar. I was looking at my desk here to see. I, I have my copy of Rocket Fuel sitting <laughs> right around here somewhere. <laughs> but uh, yeah, so my role on the multifamily side. So on the single family side, I do help to uh, raise capital. That's one of my roles, mm -hmm. single family side, which uh, you and I haven't talked about the Capital Call, which is a brand that, that mm -hmm. we talked very briefly about the social media stuff. But on the multifamily side, um, my area of operations, I'm actually very closely both, uh, an integrator and a visionary, both I do my integrator side outranks my visionary by, got it. you know, 10, 15%. So I've got kind of a, a, an interesting mixture in my personality of, of what I like to do and what I'm good at. Mm -hmm. And it tends to be systems driven. So in all of my companies, I end up being the one that, um, you know, incorporates the business, sets up all of the banking, um, you know, lines up all of the contractors mm -hmm. like the, you know, bookkeeping and all of that stuff. Um, I oversee data management, um, the finances, of course, and add perspective, kind of like you said, uh, around construction and whatnot. So if there's a project that needs a little bit of rehab, um, usually I'm the go-to uh, for providing quotes for what I think mm -hmm. it would cost to actually uh, re rehabilitate that unit. Although in general, we try to avoid rehabs at this point. We're looking for mostly BC class, you know, re relatively turnkey um, and then doing improvements later down the road. But um, those are probably my biggest roles. I am more so the integrator tying everything mm -hmm. together. Um, and then like a sounding board for my other two partners, you know, they'll, they'll come to me cause they're both more so visionary mm -hmm. types than anything. And so they come up with, they may come up with a big grand idea and they, they come to me to, uh, try and put it into tactical real world terms. It, it's it. funny. I always joke with them because as part of my role, I'm really good at shooting holes in things. Like I don't want to shoot down the whole idea. My job is just to say, okay, well, here's going to be a challenge. Here's going to be a challenge. Here's going to be a challenge. Right. Um, yes. so yeah. And you are so important to every single team to, to have someone like you, Bobby. And I think your team must feel so lucky to kind of have you here. I think that is your experience and your wealth of knowledge is just so precious. Um, I can definitely see why everyone will want you on their team, especially when it comes to raising private capital, right? We talk about people only invest with people that you know, you like, and you trust. And yep. knowing your experience, right? You are someone that, man, I would I would not hesitate to invest in a heartbeat, man. Like well, just knowing your experience. That. Like we'll have it's, to do some business together at some point. Yeah, absolutely. We definitely need to do some business together. And this is why we got into these communities. This is why we talk and network. It's like, I get to meet amazing people like you with, with awesome backgrounds and a kind heart, right? So maybe that's a good, good transition into, you know, your role uh, as a board of director on your local housing or they're from Merced County. Yeah. Um, obviously you're not talking in a, in a public capacity right now, but tell us like, what, what are your goals? Um, 
you know, serving on a board director for a local housing authority. Like we, we talk a lot about affordable housing and how there's a huge need. You mentioned like there's a big shortage here in California for housing. Like what are your goals and what kind of change are you trying to drive? Yeah. So housing authority, that is, that's a good one. Um, housing authority. Oh, is my, uh, is my camera stuck, Kent? I, your camera is a little stuck, but we, oh, I can okay. still hear you loud and clear. So we can okay, good. still keep talking. Yep. All right. Well, that's the important part. Yes. Okay. So um, housing authorities uh, serve a very important purpose in the community, as you know. Um, and it was it was something that I came across uh, really as, I, I've, I think we've all heard of Section 8 at some point mm -hmm. in time, heard that term, yep. may not necessarily know exactly what it means, but we've heard it at some point in time. And so we've we've had something of a um a homelessness crisis in california right it's it's in the news frequently mm -hmm. so people are aware that's going on yep but that that whole thing um that whole issue is very very complicated and it's not nearly as simple as most people think that it is mm -hmm. and so i set out to do a little bit of research and figure out okay what what is the solution here? What is the problem? How can I get involved? How can I help? And in my research, I found out how important the role of the housing authority is mm -hmm. in every jurisdiction. Um, and so right off the bat, I uh, started paying attention to the board meetings, reading mm -hmm. the minutes, you know, getting up to speed on what they do and how they do it. And um, put in an application when a spot opened up on the board. Uh, so somebody had, had turned off. And so I went down to the County and filled out the application. I was interviewed by a small committee from the board of supervisors mm -hmm. and they, um, they ended up selecting me and one other, uh, to come on the board as, as new board members. Wow. That's super cool. And let's, let's just maybe just talk a little bit about, the relationships between the landlord and the housing authority, right? For some yeah. folks that might not understand, like, why is there a housing authority? Can't, why can't I just rent it out to a section eight renter, whatever that means, right? Why mm -hmm. is the housing authority kind of getting involved in that whole process? It's, it's meant to be an open-ended question. Love to kind of hear your perspective there. Yeah, sure. So the, the housing authority ultimately, um, their role is to verify that number one, the, the eligibility of the person receiving the voucher and number two, to ensure a safe and habitable mm -hmm. environment for that tenant. So section eight properties go through an inspection to ensure mm -hmm. that they are, um, you know, uh, safe for occupancy and, depending on where you're at, the, the guidelines are pretty universal because they come down from HUD yep. from the federal government. But, mm -hmm. um, the, the standards, the standards are pretty good. They're pretty high. Um, and if the housing authority is doing its job properly, uh, nobody should ever want for repairs or anything mm -hmm. that's necessary for the function of, of their unit. Um, yeah. But at the end of the day, that is really the, I would say, the two biggest outcomes that a housing authority seeks. They seek to house as many eligible individuals as possible by providing them with the vouchers. 
and then also to ensure that the units that they're renting are safe. Yes. And I think this is a really great benefit for people thinking about becoming a Section A landlord, right? Where this inspection is not really meant to be like an uncle, like a brother saying, I'm like looking over your shoulders all the time. It's meant so that you actually get someone looking at your home on a yearly basis that actually might help you keep up with the maintenance. And I think people like lose out on that on that benefit whenever they think about, oh, I got to deal with this, right? It's actually a really right. good thing. You want to stay on top of these issues that might happen. And knowing that the tenant has been verified by the government source, now you know that that government-backed rent is actually coming to you on time and guaranteed every single month. So that's going to be a huge, huge benefit for anyone looking to invest in Section 8 here. It's, there are programs in place to, to safeguard not only the tenant, but also the landlord to kind of make it fair on all parties. And that's really what how you incentivize behavior to drive more supply into the market. Would you agree? Anything else Absolutely. you would add there? Absolutely. Yeah. Um, yeah, the, the, the housing authority, at least from a landlord perspective, um, the, the things that we hear landlords say the most about why they, they like dealing with housing authority and or section eight is mostly to do with, um, number one, it's reliable income, right? The, house, yep. the housing authority and the federal government doesn't generally miss payments. That, that's very reliable. <laughs> yes. And like you said, a lot of them do appreciate the fact that it gets essentially inspected for them, uh, you know, once a year. And that is an amazing, amazing benefit. Do not count, do not miss out on that benefit, guys, for all the listeners that are watching right now and listening right now. It's you got to look into the inspection checklist. Obviously, you can't wing it, right? It's meant to be a checklist, it's meant to be a rigid process because that's how you ensure a high quality of living for a lot of the residents from the Section 8 program. So that's gonna be really, really important. And one other thing that the housing authority does, and I've seen it for multiple counties and housing authorities, is you can actually go to their website and look up, hey, what the payment standards are, how much uh -huh. can you expect to receive for rent for a particular zip code or maybe a city. It kind of differs by city and by county, where some might be zip code based, some might be uh, city based. But that is something that for auto listeners right now, that's something you can do right now. You can kind of go in there, go to your local housing authority and see if you can research some of these items because Again, another benefit, you're not guessing at what rent you can get. You're, you're more of like, hey, this is the ceiling of what I can expect to receive from the government. And you can work bar backwards on whether or not that rent is reasonable uh, based on the market comps there. So I love that we went through that. Um, Bobby, I, I know we're on affordable housing, but I definitely, definitely want to make sure we had a chance to talk about the nonprofit stuff that you're doing. So tell us a little bit about yeah. you know, the, the web development that you are helping out, you're volunteering your time for. I'd love to hear a little bit more about that and how can people get involved? Yeah, so um, this, is, this is a topic that I'm really passionate about as well, obviously, because um, you know, I spend time working for this company, Bitwise. Mm -hmm. um, their, their mission really resonated with me because I come from a community that's uh, you know, an underdog mm -hmm. community. Uh, Merced, California, usually if we're making it onto a list, it's usually not a good list. Uh, <laughs> fortunately, last 10 wow. years, we've made it onto some, some better lists like personal income growth. We ranked Got actually it. one of the highest in the nation. So we're wow. on our way up. But Bitwise started out of the Fresno area. Um, Irma Olguin um, and Jake Soberall are the, the co-founders and, and CEOs. Mm -hmm of the company and they took this model where it's, it's funny they're actually a real estate company as well if you can believe it 
So they buy dilapidated buildings, rehab them really nice too. I mean, if you saw mm-hmm. these buildings, you'd be amazed. Very modern uh, architecture with a lot of artistic flair. It's, it's amazing. Then they will, they have this workforce development side that helps train people to give them programming and coding skills. The idea being that hopefully they'll spin off and create a company and become a tenant in the building. Wow. So that's, that's so cool. And it's, so smart. It's a really neat deal. Um, and they found great success with it. They're expanding rapidly. Um, in fact, they, they bought a big building downtown Toledo um, historic building, huge. It's, you know, it's like 80,000 square feet or something. And, um, which is funny because I'm, I'm in the process of buying a big portfolio in Toledo right now, actually. Um, but, uh, yeah, the, that part has been really cool. We're taking people that otherwise might not have had access to guided training, um, and giving Mm -hmm. it to them. Um, you know, right now it's all remote so we're doing all the, the, the education over Zoom. But I mean, yep. I've had students uh, from, um, you know, South Africa. Oh, I've wow. had students from um, Chicago. I've had students from Detroit. Um, I mean, all over the place, as well as, um, you know, Merced and, and some of our local areas. But it's been a really cool experience. And we kind of... It's boot camp style, so it's it's quick paced, but mm-hmm. um, it gives you a guided exposure to programming, and we've seen some phenomenal outcomes for some people. Some of my earliest students are now founding companies, or they're now employed developers. You know, with Bitwise, making you know amazing money that they never thought they would make as as you know somebody living in Merced or Fresno. Dude, what a beautiful story, man! Like. You must be so proud. Your family must be so proud. It's it's an incredible feeling when you're able to and like help so many people and literally change their lives, man, with with actual technical skills that is going to benefit them. And it's almost like transferable, right? We talk we're in this world yeah. of big data, information, artificial intelligence. Like these are going to be skills that are going to be in demand no matter what. And you are not only providing job security, you're providing them like a, a launch pad for growth, where they will take these skills and start their own companies. How crazy is that? You know, it's like these ideas, these thoughts, sometimes, you know, without you, these thoughts and these opportunities never would have come up. And that is such a beautiful story, Bobby. Like, uh, I'm so impressed, like hearing about your background and hearing all the things you do and hearing about the change you're trying to drive your local housing authority. It's, it's so beautiful. It's, you're going to leave behind a legacy that a lot of people remember. And I can't thank you enough, right? I, I, I thanked you before we got on the podcast, but seriously, thank you for what you do. Without people like you, like my family and I, we, we would have never had a, a safe home, a safe, stable home for us to kind of grow up in and develop these opportunities, right? And what you're doing is you're going even a step further, not just providing housing, but you're providing these, skill, these skills and teaching these skills to people, to children that, that have this need and you're helping them succeed. I'm trying, wow. man. It's just so I'm trying. It's, it's so cool. It's so beautiful. And it, it makes life so meaningful. <laughs> <laughs> well, I appreciate you saying that. I'd, uh, I don't do well with compliments. I'm over here blushing. <laughs> but uh, yeah, man, I'm just, just trying to make the community a better place. Um, you know, it's 
you're not you're not remembered by how many rental units you owned. You know, you're you're remembered by the impact you had in your community. And that's how I want to be remembered as somebody that made an impact. That's right. I mean, and I usually like asking like a mindset related question to kind of end every single podcast. Right. What has been like, have you ever had any like epiphanies or moments where it's just like, hey, I'm not scared of this stuff anymore? Because a lot of new investors, they just don't know what they want to do. They, they're all over the place. They're also trying to they're too scared to have analysis paralysis. Have you ever had yeah. that moment where you're like, wow, I'm so scared. But here's what I'm going to do and persevere. Like, tell us a little bit about your mindset development over the years. Oh gosh. Um, I've had so many epiphanies over the years, but if I had to boil it down for somebody that's new in, in real estate, um, Pace has said this, so have several other people, but, um, Mm -hmm. it's, it's take scary action. Um, and what that means is that jump in and do something, um, you know, pick a path, learn it, you know, start doing it. There's, there's no teacher like experience. There just isn't, um, you know, you can, you can study all the things and all the books you want and not to say that books aren't good. I read a lot of books. So, um, Mm -hmm. you want to have the knowledge base, but what you don't want to end up with is all this knowledge and no action. And I would say that Jumping in and especially teaming up, um, yes. there is some extreme benefits to having some level of accountability by teaming up with somebody, even mm-hmm. if it's just to do like a daily check in. Hey, yeah. you know, did you make any calls to try and reach some sellers today? You know, what did what did you do today to further what I know your goal is? Um, that and, you know, teaming up with people to actually try and, and, and do whatever your, your passion is. Um, for some people, they, they like wholesale. Some people, they Mm -hmm. like construction. So they do fix and flips. Um, I would say out of everything that somebody can do, wholesale is probably the easiest, lowest cost Mm -hmm. way to start learning and getting involved. Um, but yeah, take scary action, jump in, uh, don't be reckless. Don't go spending all your money or something, yep. uh, you know, uh, trying to trying to chase it. But um, take action. You'll learn a lot there. There is uh, there is no better teacher than experience. That's that's what that. would be my boiled down mindset. I love that, Bobby. And I think for people like as much as you can listen to this, you got to take action right here on on this podcast. We talk a lot about affordable housing, but we blend in a little bit of real estate investing because mm-hmm. Sometimes I understand that people don't think like affordable housing is the sexiest thing in the world, right? Sometimes there's a bad connotation with Section 8, but we're here to to bust those myths. But we're also here to pull back the current and share with people like why you can be successful with Section 8. Like a lot of people are guessing on the rents. You can have a number that's displayed on a website that tells exactly what you can get with Section 8. So that takes a little bit of fear out. Now, that doesn't mean you can't go screen your tenants and do all the right things and manage your rehabs properly. But every single podcast episode, every single action you take, you're going to learn something. And that Mm -hmm. is going to help you build your story. And as you think about scaling your business or hopefully not everyone just wants one rental. And chances are you listening to this podcast, you probably just don't want just one rental. But this is going to help you build that experience and build your credibility so that you can raise private capital like what Bobby is doing nowadays. So 
take action, get that experience, and you're going to have something really, really cool to talk about, even if it's a mistake, even though it's going to be a learning no matter what. So, hey, Bobby, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Uh, you have provided a value, value-packed episode. Uh, I can definitely vouch for that, just hearing all the content, just trying to soak up everything at once, man. So thank you again for coming on the show, and hopefully we'll have you back uh, at some point once you're yeah. uh, kind of like spend a little bit more time local housing tour and we would love to see where this raw land deal goes. That'll be pretty cool. Absolutely. Anytime. All right. Thanks a lot. Have a good one. Thank you, Kent.